Hello, hello. Welcome back to another episode of the Sly Hooper podcast. It's been a bit, so apologies for the gap in between episodes. You'll probably just get this episode for the month, but next month we should be back to our normal two podcasts a month minimum. Recording this on a Monday at 11 o'clock a.m., March 25th, and we have some, maybe we have some traction on the NBA season possibly resuming. Reports from The Athletic and ESPN over the last few days basically points to the NBA possibly returning in late July, playing on the ESPN campus. I think it's an ESPN facility. I don't know if it's a campus or not, but it's at Disney World in Orlando, Florida. From what I've read and gathered, it looks like it's going to be an Olympic Village style of setting where athletes are housed together for the remainder of the regular season and the playoffs. Looks like teams want to reach 70 wins, which seems like a pretty good number. It'll give... If that's the case, it'll give teams like the Grizzlies, the Sacramento Kings, and the New Orleans Pelicans, who are currently in a three-way tie last I checked, for the eighth seed in the Western Conference. Excuse me, the uh, Pelicans, Kings, and Blazers. They're all on the outside looking in, tied three and a half games back behind the eighth seed in, behind the eighth seed in Memphis Grizzlies, which, before the pandemic hit, the Grizzlies were slipping a little bit. They were 4-6 and six in their last 10 games. Especially, they started going downhill after they traded their veteran players that were contributing to the team, like Jay Crowder. You could kind of tell that... You could kind of tell that they were kind of unstable a little bit. And I mean, that's that's just a young team. John Morant's a rookie. Jaron Jackson's a second-year player who still fouls a lot. But, I mean, it would still be a compelling race. So, it'll be good if they can be able to get to 70 wins, if they're able to pull this off. That's the whole thing with this. Nobody really knows, obviously, what's going to happen. We thought one thing literally two weeks ago, and then we think another now. And things are just constantly in flux. The other interesting thing that... I think is uh I think should be noted in this podcast is just about an hour ago before I started recording I saw a tweet someone was watching get up on ESPN and basically Brian Winhorst ESPN's ace NBA reporter ace LeBron reporter etc cetera, etc cetera, said that it's very Likely, or there's a really good chance, I think was the quote that the tweet suggested, that the NBA is considering going to a 1-16 through seeded playoffs with no conferences to finish out the playoffs. Which I've had, I've gone, 
I wouldn't say I've gone back and forth on a 16-seeded playoffs with no conferences. I've generally been for it. I have been more receptive to listening to what could be potential pitfalls of having a 16-seeded playoff bracket. I do think a lot of those reasons come down to being traditionalist, which there's nothing wrong with having some traditions, but I do think as time goes on, and I've especially learned over these last four years, and you know why I reference these last four years. I mean, it's pretty obvious, <laughs> but these last four years have shown me that with no inability to change and a refusal to accept evolution is just really detrimental unless you don't try it. So um, as a very coded way of saying that these last four years in our country have just changed a lot of things that I've thought about. Um, so I say that to say that the NBA should embrace a 1 through 16 seed. Now there is the element of, you know, not having rivalries um there could be more incentive for teams to tank even though that doesn't really bother me like a lot of people who try to play moralist during the entire time uh sam hinky was capping cap being the cap during the whole time Sam Hinkie was the captain of the most ambitious tanking project in NBA history in Philadelphia but that is one pitfall that the NBA could see is that more teams will be incentivized to tank because the West, even though the East has gotten a little bit better, the West is still, at least at the bottom half, like there's more depth in the Western Conference as opposed to the Eastern Conference, where I would argue that you could stack up those top six teams, those top five teams versus the West top five teams. And that includes the Bucks and the Lakers going head up. You could put the Sixers in there once they reach their ceiling. They're a maddening team, but you can't deny that their ceiling is really high, even though it's a odd fit. The Celtics could match up well with anybody because of their wings and Jalen Brown emerging into an all-star. I actually thought he should have been an all-star before Jason Tatum, but that, that was before Jason Tatum started going on a hot streak and everybody started crowning him as a top 10 player which was insane because Ben Simmons is better. But anyway, uh, um, so you will lose that element of the, you will lose that element of intensity when it comes to a Western conference side of a bracket and an Eastern conference side of a bracket. But there's just so much more entertaining series if you just map it out right now. So pulling up this tweet from Kurt Goldsberry, who released a projected bracket or tweeted out a projected bracket, the one through six, the one in the one seed versus the 16, the one versus 16 seeded matchup will be the Bucks and the Magic. That's going to be a wash. 
not a wash as in it's going to be a tie. I mean, the Bucks are just going to straight up wash the Magic. People probably already turned off that podcast before I even clarified what I just said. Miami and Oklahoma City would be the 8-9 matchup in this bracket with the Bucks and the Magic. That would be a fire matchup. The Thunder have been really good this year, especially when they've been going to that three-guard lineup of Chris Paul, Dennis Schroeder, and and uh, and uh, Shea Gilgis-Alexander. They also have one of the best crunch time lineups in the NBA if you look at pull up the numbers. Versus in the Miami Heat, they've been one of the f- more fun teams to watch this year. I love watching Duncan Robinson and Tyler Hero shoot the hell out of the ball, even though Tyler Hero has been injured. Jimmy Butler kind of playing the pseudo point guard role and just a bunch of players that match the Heat identity and culture, I guess you could say. Even though I think the Heat culture can be a little bit overblown, I think players who love that type of environment and thrive in that type of environment usually make for a better team and more team camaraderie and chemistry, which is why the Heat are performing above expectations. And I was kind of high on the Heat before the year even started, even though I'm probably more critical of Jimmy Butler and his time with the Sixers than any than a lot of people, and I appreciate Jimmy Butler's time in Philly. I wish we still had him. But the Heat are really good. Then you got in the next bracket, you got the four and thirteen matchup and the five seed and twelve seed matchup, which would be four the four and thirteen seeded matchup would be the Clippers and the Mavericks, which would be really fun. You could see Luca in his first playoff series going up against Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. I saw a Clippers-Mavericks game earlier this year, earlier in the season, uh, when the Clippers went to Dallas, and I really wanted to watch that game, because at that point, I think Dallas was the fourth seed. They were kind of making noise, and Luka was averaging almost a 30-point triple-double at that point, and Kawhi and Paul George kind of just gave the Mavericks the absolute business at home and blew them out. Kind of par for the course for the Mavs at home, too. They don't have as good of a home record as you'd think. They're way they're actually better on the road. But that would be a fun matchup. And then of course, cuz time is a flat circle and it doesn't matter what the circumstances are, the Boston Celtics at the 5 seed would be playing my Sixers at the 12 seed, and I actually think we match up well against Boston. Even though some of those games in the regular season were a little bit closer than what the final score indicated, I just think the Sixers' size and talent is just too much for Boston. Also, you could just throw Ben Simmons on Jason Tatum and he'll do an extraordinary job defending him. I want you to look at primary scorers' numbers when they're being guarded specifically by Ben Simmons. Because when you look at the numbers on that, it's absurd. Like, holding players to like 2 of 9 shooting and then that same player who's shooting 2 of 9 against Ben Simmons is shooting like 5 of 7 against his other teammates. That just shows like the type of defensive impact Ben Simmons has had and it's kind of maddening that people still don't think he got better even though it's not what I even though it wasn't the leap that I or a lot of Sixer fans wanted he still got better which is why we shouldn't trade him I'm gonna keep mentioning that every podcast it's just absurd that people still want to try to break this duo up but 
you know, it is my podcast. I will drop Sixers anecdotes a lot. Hopefully not to the Bill Simmons level, but, you know, the 5 and the 12 seed right now would be the Sixers and Celtics, so I'm talking about my team. And I could see a lot of salt on Twitter, obviously, with Celtics Twitter and Sixers Twitter just being equally contentious. It's interesting being a team of an East, or it's interesting being a fan of an East Coast team living on the West Coast my whole life, because I don't think I have the East Coast angst that sports fans on that side of the country have. Like, I get passionate, I get pissed when I watch my Niners, I watch Sixer games like I'm watching an NFL game every Sunday, I treat it like a football game every Sunday, or even I though I probably I shouldn't because it's an 82 game season and then afterwards I'll calm down because once you once the game's over you kind of cool down and you see the bigger picture again because you're a fan in the moment as much as you want to try to be objective because you're also analyzing the NBA and doing a podcast for a living but it's interesting seeing the whole dynamic of Philadelphia and their reputation as being a angry city. I actually would love to live there. Um, I've thought about moving there. I had dreams of moving there when I was a kid, especially when I started turning into an Allen Iverson fan. But just from the outside looking in as an outsider who is also a fan of a team that's on the other side of the country... It's interesting just seeing how different, I guess, I process games, pun intended, or not intended. Because I do think the California in me allows me to decompress more after basketball games than, I think, actual Sixer fans in Philadelphia. And that's not to say I don't get mad after a game still or steaming. Like, after the Kawhi shot, I was pretty much brooding for a week. Um, in last year's playoffs, you know, and I'm, I'm, let's just say I'm not, I guess I'm not, a. I don't know. I guess I just don't have that. I don't know how to explain it. It's just interesting watching how Philly reacts. Cause that's the type of passion I actually mess with. And I think I would love it there. I just think I, in some conversations, if I were to like run into a random person on the street, I think uh, I would be a lot more, I guess, I guess I would be too chill for the average, sometimes I would be too relaxed for the average sports conversation in Philadelphia, but I never been there, so I never know, I'm just projecting right now, but I would love to live there at some point in my life, but you know, we're in a pandemic right now, so I ain't even thinking about the next like five years honestly but so that's just a little tidbit there back to the rest of this bracket um 215 I think that's a wash the two seed and the 15 seed matchup the Lakers and the Nets no Kyrie Irving Kevin Durant's not going to come back even with this extended break as you can say for the NBA season the Lakers are going to wash the Nets Jazz and Rockets is more of an interesting matchup because the game they played after the Rockets traded Clint Capella and brought back Robert Covington in that four-team trade at the deadline, 
The Rockets played the Jazz, and the Jazz won in Houston on a Boyan Bogdanovich buzzer beater, which he will no longer, his season's over. He had wrist surgery, which made me question the timing of it. Maybe it got, maybe it flared up again during the pandemic while he was in quarantine. I don't know. But that's going to be tough for the Jazz because he's kind of the barometer for the Jazz. Uh, Donovan Mitchell, he's still good, but he's still relatively young. And he's kind of inefficient and is a volume shooter. Rudy Gobert, I think, can be taken out of a playoff series in the right matchup. And I actually think this Rockets team would be a bad matchup for the Jazz. Because if you just let Russell Westbrook attack the rim, like in that Jazz-Rockets game, just let him attack the rim full bore all game. I mean, we saw it. Russell Westbrook dominated Gobert and the Jazz interior defense. So it would be an interesting series. I'd, I'd be interested to watch it, but it would probably be the Rockets winning again for a third straight year. The 3-14 and 14 seed, that could be sneaky interesting because the Grizzlies are a young team. But the Raptors also don't have Kawhi. And I would love to see Pascal Siakam in a playoff setting where he's not the second or third option. Mostly second. Because Kyle Lowry isn't really a scorer per se. Even though he's the best player or the second best player on the team and the best player probably in Raptors history. Though I would still argue DeRozan. Oh, but his efficiency... Mid-range jumpers. But I still think the Raptors would win in five. It would be one of those entertaining five-game series, much like... See, I'm trying to come up with recent entertaining five-game series. Pelicans-Warriors back in 2015, where the Warriors won in five. I remember that being pretty fun. Bulls-Wizards in the 2014 first round of the playoffs, while the basketball wasn't beautiful per se, it was actually a rock fight. Um, It was still a close five-game series. There were two overtime games. They, I mean, if anything, it was entertaining because it was dramatic. But with the talent on both the 13 and the 14 seed, uh or both with the talent on both the third seed and the 14th seed. I actually think this would be a closer quick series than a lot of people expect. Nuggets Pacers, the 6-11 matchup. That one is a uh, also an interesting one. Pacers kind of flying under the radar a little bit. They were kind of tailing off. They were switching back and forth between the with the Sixers between the 5th and the 6th seed. They were kind of the sixth seed for a little bit. Then they kind of went on a run there with um, closing out. And now they're the fifth seed. Oladipo still trying to round out into form. Demonis Sabonis and, and Nikola Jokic. That would be a great center battle. Demonis Sabonis has been awesome this year. It seems they're still committed to trying to make the Turner-Sabonis pairing work. And the Pacers just have a lot of good guards that I like. I mean, Aaron Holiday, Justin Holiday, shooters. Any Holiday family member is just, I assume, is going to be automatically good at basketball. 
Aaron Holiday just seems like he's going to be a really good backup point guard, sixth man, borderline starter for years to come. And I think you always need those on a championship team or a good team. And of course, you got TJ Warren, who I still don't understand why the Suns traded him for what they got. It was it's this highway robbery. You basically gave TJ Warren to the Pacers for free. And TJ Warren makes $11 million a year for the next two years. Because he signed that four-year deal two seasons ago at 11 mil per year. And when you get a score with size like that, and somebody who wasn't a great three-point shooter to start his career with the Suns, shout out to my homie George, big Suns fan. And now he is... Well, last year with Phoenix, he was a 40 he turned himself into a 40% three-point shooter, which was crazy. And then this year, let's see, pulling up the numbers now. TJ Warren this season shooting 37.5% from 3 after shooting, yeah, wow, I was way off last year. He shot 42.8% from 3 after going 22% from three in the 2017-18 season. Pacers got a good deal with him. And then, of course, as mentioned before, the Nuggets with Nikola Jokic. Trying to, they're kind of just flying under the radar. Their offense hasn't been as world-destroying as it was last year, but their defense is up. Gary Harris is having a down contract year. And that was actually, <laughs> when Gary Harris signed his extension, that was one of my first, I guess, bouts with NBA Twitter back on my before I took my Twitter hiatus last year I remember when Gary Harris signed his four-year extension and it was a good deal because at that time Gary Harris was a really good defender and was shooting 40% from three and I remembered people were just railing the nuggets for that deal and I'm just like are you kidding me that's great value for an athletic three and D wing who can attack a closeout the perfect player to fit around the best passing big man of all time. And it's a cheap deal. I think it was like four years, 85 million or something like that. So I replied to Woj's tweet when he broke that news. And I was basically like, the people who are saying this is a bad contract have only watched like two Nuggets games. And I hate to be the wa watch the games guy. I hate those type of statements because it's like, you don't watch every game of every other team and yet you want to have an opinion on those teams so why can I have an opinion on your team why can't you have an opinion on my team I might disagree with you but if I'm having a basketball conversation with you or a debate and your first response to my argument is oh well you clearly don't watch the games well then I don't take you seriously I just don't want to talk to you about that because you're obviously not fun to talk basketball with you think everything you say is absolute and I'm not in high school anymore and I don't think like that anymore so we got to do better at having intelligent basketball conversations but sometimes when you see people just railing a good player like Gary Harris you can just tell sometimes people don't watch the games and you know that's fine. 
Just don't talk out of the side of your ass or come at me or somebody else for having an opinion on a player that they actually have watched. But Gary Harris had a few injuries last year and he's having a down year this year, but hopefully he can turn it around soon because I just think athletic three and D wings are still a valuable commodity in today's NBA. Anyway, before, uh, so I guess my conclusion to all this is it seems like the NBA is very determined to bring this back, bring this season back. And I'm for a 16 seed playoffs. And if that opens the door for a 16 seed, no conference playoffs, then I guess it's okay to sacrifice the conference rivalries a little bit. But like I just said, the Sixers would still be playing the Celtics. So it's not like rivalries would be completely out of rivalry matchups would be completely out of the question. It just depends on how you finish the season. Like you would on like how it works on either side of the conf, either side of the conference bracket. But let's go to the last dance before I finish this podcast off. So I'm a little I'm a week late talking about the ending of the last dance. I know everybody's gotten their takes off and all that stuff, but I kind of just wanted to give it a week to digest it a little bit, organize my thoughts cuz I think sometimes in the rush to get content out um people still while they like to think that they are objective when they speak about something that they just watched, they really aren't in a lot of cases you're still kind of coming down from seeing this grandiose story or whatever content you're consuming and so I wanted to give the last dance some breathing room and now we're a week removed so I guess I have a few quick thoughts um one the backstory for me is I watched Space Jam a lot when I was a kid so I would I would basically beg my parents to get and go to Blockbuster and rent Space Jam. We never really bought we never bought it somehow, but we'd always rent it from Blockbuster. And just for me, when I've ever since I've been a kid, I love sports and cartoons and drawings and art and stuff like that. And whenever two of my worlds collide I love it even though I watch Space Jam now and it's bad bad acting I'll still watch it because it's the nostalgia's fun so anyway I watched it a lot and Michael Jordan kind of became my favorite player I don't remember any games from Michael Jordan when I was a kid his last his last season with the Bulls I was seven and to say that I don't remember Michael Jordan games is an understatement I do remember him being talked about a lot and him being treated like a god and seeing him in Space Jam was just the coolest thing to me I also kind of remember getting excited as a nine ten year old when Jordan came back to the Washington Wizards and I even remember watching a few nationally televised games when I was that age obviously remember the I think it was yeah it was the 03 all-star game his last all-star game also I remember watching that also and then of course as I was growing up I would watch documentaries on Jordan and stuff and then at this point I was I turned into an Iverson fan because kids in my school would be like oh Michael Jordan's my favorite player because he'd be in Space Jam 
And I guess you could say I was the hipster before the hipster without knowing it. I was basically like, okay, I'm going to like a different player now. (laughs) And then, of course, I end up liking one of the more cultural iconic figures in basketball history who has turned me into the Sixer fan that I am today. So I've liked Michael Jordan. I'm one of those few millennials. That's, I guess if you're, I guess if you're an older, an older person, probably under from age between age 35 and 45 or whatever age 35 and up. And you're wondering how a millennial can be a Michael Jordan fan. I guess you got your answer right there. It was kind of a, a certain sequence of circumstances that would never happen again, probably. Or it has happened. I'm not going to say never happened. But it was specific circumstances that led me to being a Michael Jordan fan. And I like everybody who was a teenager or in their 20s watching the 90, the Bulls in the 90s. I mean, they'll, they've all said the same thing reliving through this documentary. And the same thing I thought when I was a, a kid and watching everybody revere Michael Jordan and documentaries and specials and all that stuff. He was just so freaking cool. He was awesome. Like the way he walks the way the swag that he had when he walked onto the court, the stories of him talking trash to players, his smooth get his athleticism, and then of course po- and then of course the second three P Bulls, he kind of evolves and becomes more of a post player. He'll still give you that little glimpse of his athleticism, but Jordan's older at this point, he's smarter. And then of course, the Utah capper, the the game winner to secure championship number six. I mean, you're watching, just think about it. You're an impressionable teenager and you're watching either it's a documentary segment or an NBA TV special, but you're watching the cinematography on these shots and how people in side interviews are explaining the shot and all that stuff. It was, all of it was just so cool to me. So as you can imagine from this long diatribe, I've watched a lot of Jordan content. And so I was really looking forward to this Last Dance documentary. Once it started getting traction a few years ago and people were talking about the mythical lost tapes of the NBA. I swear, it sounds like Indiana Jones or an anime or something like that with how the stories and the storylines play out. But this mythical footage of where a camera crew, which was headed by then head of the NBA entertainment department adam silver who is now the commissioner him and camera crews were following around the bulls every day for the for the 98 season it was going to be the last dance then head then general manager and president of basketball operations jerry Krause was basically like this is the last year i don't care i don't care if you go 82 and 0 i'm gonna fire you and i'm gonna blow this team up and i'm gonna rebuild from scratch which is insane to me, by the way. You have the cash cow of the NBA in the Chicago Bulls. And because you felt like you didn't get enough credit for building this team, you want to blow it up and show them out of some expression of, hey, look at me, I can do this too. Like, that's just that's asinine to me. You have Michael Jordan. You have Scottie Pippen. You have Dennis Rodman. 
Now, would the Bulls have won a seventh championship in the lockout season? I don't know. But I think there is something to be said for there is honor in winning until you can't anymore. And I think in this documentary, look, there's been there's been a lot of criticism and debate about this documentary. And my first take is we ain't got nothing to do. Sports have been canceled. And Michael Jordan is opening up in a way that he hasn't before, even if it's controlled, even if he has complete and total say in what is being put into the documentary or whatever. He still hasn't opened up in a way he's in this documentary. He still opened up in a way that we never got to see. We got to see current version of Jordan reliving his career verbatim even though we've heard the stories before it was cool hearing him confirm it even though he snitched on his teammates who were doing drugs during his rookie year (laughs) um with the Chicago Bulls there was a lot of snitching in this documentary I will say there was a lot of snitching from Jordan in this documentary which you know for the jokes I'm here for but I mean What did people expect when they came into this documentary? Of course Michael Jordan's going to have total say. It's Michael Jordan. He was close to the vest. He always plays his cards close to the vest anyway. And there have been multiple attempts to try to get this lost footage, which wasn't possible unless Jordan and Adam Silver both gave approval at the same time. If you want to look at how this documentary came to fruition, Ramona Shelburne of ESPN actually did a deep dive on how The Last Dance came about, and it's a really good read. I'd recommend it. But I don't know how you can go into this documentary and expect Jordan to tell the truth. Now, that doesn't mean that I didn't have a problem with a few parts in the documentary. One of my major, I guess... Not even gripes. I guess one thing I would have liked to see is more of... I thought going into this documentary, they played it as the last dance. The last run of a one of the greatest dynasties of all time. And I would have liked to see them actually... chronicle the entire season completely. Instead of it... They were, they were trying to... They were kind of trying to do the, we're going to chronicle the 1997-98 season, the last season of the Bulls dynasty, but we're also going to try to go back in time and tie certain points of Michael Jordan's highlights in his career back to the 98 season. And I thought that kind of, there were points where it kind of messed up the flow of the documentary for me especially early on. But I mean, the footage, man. I would have loved to see just nothing but untapped footage from that season. I mean, they went behind the scenes of the 1998 All-Star Game at Madison Square Garden, which Jordan has said repeatedly is his favorite arena to play in because everybody just gives the Knicks buckets there, no matter if the Knicks are good or not. But you just, just the behind the scenes of, and especially for me, who had finally been, who has finally been going to NBA games as a member of the media for the first time this year, and knowing what, 
knowing what the locker room and the arena tunnels and everything looks like and feels like and smells like. Like, I was tripping out just seeing Michael Jordan walking through the tunnels of Madison Square Garden and stars like Grant Hill. Shaq was on the Lakers at that point. That was Kobe's first All-Star game, which was also kind of gut-wrenching to watch the, I think it was the sixth episode, where they basically started off with that that Madison Square Garden All-Star game in 98. And Kobe was doing the interview. The episode starts off with Kobe sitting down and doing the interview. And I, I still can't believe he's gone. I, re- I really can't. Like, the pandemic kind of made me move my mind to a different space because now we're dealing with something that's completely unprecedented. But Kobe died four months ago tomorrow. Like that's, I still can't, I still can't believe it, but just seeing those stars in awe of Jordan, which by the way, This is his last season before he retires, and he's still considered the best player in the world. Young and -and up-and-coming players, like the players that I just mentioned, are going to take the league by storm soon. But Jordan is still the best player in the world in his last season at 35 years old. Like, that's crazy. And then... The behind-the-scenes practice footage of Jordan cussing out his teammates, calling his teammates hoes whenever he scores on them in scrimmages. Like, that's the type of stuff that I wanted more of. And whenever we got it in this documentary, it was just so great. And then it would cut to the current version of Jordan, the almost 60-year-old Jordan, you know, talking about those moments, talking about Scott Burrell, who Scott Burrell got bullied in this, but, you know, he took it in stride with a smile. Like, he knew that Michael Jordan operated that way, and Michael Jordan would push his teammates, and, you know, he would call his teammates dumbasses if they missed a layup and stuff like that. That's not the... I don't know if I would thrive under that type of leadership, although maybe I would because I usually just I build Belichick in and that I do my job and then I do whatever's needed whenever I'm working with a team of people, like at iHeartMedia. But I don't know if I can operate under that. Like, And it seemed like Scott Burrell and MJ were close. And that was the other thing, too. I got to see a little bit of the re- relationships between teammates and stuff like that. But I don't know. I just feel like a lot of the criticism just came from Twitter and LeBron fans who are just looking for something to complain about, yeah, there are going to be liberties taken with this documentary. Like, I wish they had dived into more of the fact that Jordan was hanging out with shady people and making bets on golf games with some black dude named Slim with the jerry curl. Like, if you know a black dude named Slim with the jerry curl, like, you must be involved in some stuff, and I want to know more about that. Like... Betting $57,000 on a golf game? And that's chump change to Michael Jordan. That's not the point of the story. It's the fact that he's betting on golf games with a dude named Slim. Like, so I wish they had dived more into that. I didn't like that. And Kyle Newbeck of Philly Voice, he tweeted this out also. But... 
I think it was the eighth episode. It was. Okay, I'm getting my episodes mixed up. So the Kobe episode in MSG Garden, I think, was episode five. I think episode seven was the year that MJ retired for the first time. And then they started diving into the 94 Bulls, which was led completely by Scottie Pippen. The Bulls won 55 games, and Pippen was top four in MVP voting that year. And really kind of, I think, broke out of his own shadow at that point, at least based on the history and stuff that I've been reading in the recounts, that people finally started respecting Pippen as one of the five best players in the world at that point, and not just Michael Jordan's sidekick. But I wish they had it. There was just some part of me that felt like. I get that the Scotty incident where he took himself out of the last play of the game because he didn't he wasn't going to get the ball. It was I mean, that's an important that's an important point in Bulls history. But there is just something about it that. I don't know, didn't sit right with me especially when you just have a quick cut in of Michael Jordan saying yeah Scotty knew that Scotty knew that he wasn't that he shouldn't do that blah 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 and it's like that was that really necessary but I get it but then my big thing which is getting back to what Kyle tweeted about was in the 97 finals in game one against the Jazz Bulls Jazz are tied Carl Malone goes to the free throw line. Carl Malone is known as the mailman back then. Scottie Pippen delivers one of the best, singular best lines of trash talk in NBA history. Scottie walks up to Carl Malone before shooting the two free throws. And the game was on a Sunday. And he walks up to Carl Malone and he says, the mailman doesn't deliver on Sundays. And Carl Malone missed both free throws. And Michael Jordan hits the game winner at the buzzer to take game one in the 97 finals, not the 98 finals. One of the best lines of trash talk in NBA history. And I would have loved for them to go in depth on that. Because hearing stories about that, hearing Steve Kerr recount that, because he was a teammate on that, he was a, he was a member of the second three-peat Chicago Bulls. Hearing him talk about the locker room reaction after Scotty told him what he said. <laughs> and like, I would have just loved to see that. And it, also, was it just me or was there unseen footage of other seasons from the Bulls that I hadn't seen before? Like when Jordan was clutching the ball and crying on the floor after he won his fourth championship against the Sonics. I never heard the crying audio that loud. Like, it was kind of gut-wrenching. <clears throat> like, it was kind of gut-wrenching in a sense. Sorry, my voice is kind of scratchy right now. But just hearing him, like, do dry heaves, is, and it obviously it's emotional because he won that fourth championship on Father's Day, you know, obviously two years after his father's murder, his tragic murder. But I never heard the audio of him crying before. I felt like I have, but it was really quiet. But for some reason, it was just more pronounced. And then you're looking at... I felt like we just saw a lot of unseen footage that wasn't just from the Last Dance camera crew that was following that team 
during the 98 season. I felt like the NBA kind of chipped in and gave some unseen footage from other points in Michael Jordan's career. But overall, I think my whole thing with this is, one, it's a great documentary, or docu-series, I should say. I was enthralled by it. I waited every Sunday for it. I didn't want to do the thing where I record them all and then binge it. Although at first, after the first two episodes, I I wanted more immediately. I just think guys like Zach Lowe brought up a good point. Like, look, we have nothing to do. It's good to have something to look forward to every week now, which I think was better in the long run. Because every Sunday at 6 o'clock, I was sitting right here in my Batman Secret Lab gaming chair watching The Last Dance. And I think that's the sign of a great documentary because I was just enthralled by it the entire time. But I just think I get it. We all want to try to be critical. We all want to try to have opinions. But, I mean, during a pandemic where we have nothing and we're getting a full scope 10-hour... Okay, not full scope because full scope would imply that they dug deep. I don't think they actually dug super deep. There were interesting points. The unseen footage was great. Seeing the players commentate, seeing the old players and ex-players commentate was great. Seeing Barack Obama when he was first introduced in the documentary and the title says Barack Obama, former Chicago resident. I thought that was hilarious. And then later in the documentary, it said they showed Obama again and it said Barack Obama, former U.S. president. Like there was a lot of stuff about this documentary to like and I would absolutely recommend it to anybody. But yes, it. I mean, it's going to have the Michael Jordan slant. I don't know why people expected anything different and I don't know if... People think they're being unique when they're trying to criticize this documentary because I think it's pretty somehow of like with everything. I don't know if this has become polarizing, but you're definitely seeing debates over this. And my whole thing is like this documentary was fun. There was a lot of interesting points and we got to see Michael Jordan open up in a way that we had never seen before, even if it's a little controlled, but we have nothing and me personally, I'm grateful that we got this documentary. And I'm also grateful that ESPN also did Game 6, the movie, which is last Wednesday, which is when they used all the camera footage from the last dance cameras from Game 6 of the finals and basically spliced them all together into the entire game, which was awesome. I, I watched that too, and it was awesome. So, great documentary. I'm not going to sit here and say it's one of the greatest documentaries of all time, but if there was one thing I would have liked to see done differently is that I would have liked to see it more, more, more focused on the 98 season and showing me more of the unseen footage. Because I know that there has got to be. If they followed them every day for an 82 game regular season. With all the ups and downs of the drama during that season. And then the drama going through the playoffs. I would have much rather just give me more of that. 
Like I I like the recount of Jordan overcoming the Bad Boys Pistons in his early career and the broken foot and Larry Bird saying that Michael Jordan is or Michael Jordan is God disguised as Michael Jordan. All that stuff. I liked I I could also listen to that stuff. But if I wanted something new, if I wanted a completely completely 95% to 100% new project, I would have liked to have seen this documentary centralize its focus more on the fact that it was the last dance of a great team headed by, in my opinion, the greatest player ever. And I know LeBron fans are going to freak out. I know older Fans who are LeBron stands are going to be like, you're a millennial. How come you didn't watch Jordan growing up? I think Zach Lowe explained it really well on a podcast with Mike with uh, Mike Greenberg, uh, the host of Get Up on ESPN. And I'm going to quote Zach Lowe a lot in this podcast because he's my favorite basketball writer and my favorite podcaster. He is the most level-headed basketball analyst out there. And he actually, quote-unquote, watches the damn games. But Zach Lowe brought up a good point. By the end of LeBron's career, he is pretty much going to be considered a better all-around player than Michael Jordan. I he already, I mean, if you're being honest, if we're being honest, he already is. But where I would take Jordan, and I'm not at this point now, I'm not one of those people who automatically dismisses people who has LeBron as the GOAT. I think it could go... I think there are a lot of different cases you can make for both players at this point. And I know Jordan fans that heard what I just said, they're going to cringe when I say that. But it's true. Whether you like it or not, it's true. But where I would take Jordan, and just going back to what Zach said, and I think he encapsulated it well for me, is that in the playoffs... When defenses, when you're playing the best defenses on a more consistent basis and you're facing off against adjustments and the game slowing down, it is obvious. It's always obvious every year. And it's funny that we go through the regular season bashing inefficient basketball like isolations and mid-range pull-ups and all that stuff. And fair points. But in the playoffs, you're going to need somebody who can get you a bucket and I could tell you as a Sixer fan who watched a grueling seven-game series with the Raptors last year, every time Kawhi got the ball in his hands, I was terrified. Absolutely terrified. Because no matter what we did, and yes, I'm saying we again, no matter what we did, Kawhi Leonard just got buckets over us. And that's the type of scoring you need in the playoffs to win a championship. And that singular skill set of getting your own shot. Michael Jordan was the greatest of all time at that. And because he was the greatest of all time at that singular skill set, while also being one of the best defenders ever, while also being a really good passer, I wouldn't go as far to, as to say great. Maybe he could have been a great passer. He made all the reads. He had all the passes in the book. He still averaged... I'm going to look it up right now before I shoot myself in the foot, but I'm pretty sure he averaged five assists per game or close to seven assists per game for his career. 
No, I was clo- I was r- closer to being right the first time. He was a career 5.3 assists per game. And remember, he played point guard also earlier in his career because there was one year, there was a three-year stretch where he averaged where he averaged eight assists, seven assists, and six assists per game. He's a freaking good passer. Really good rebounder. Actually, I'd probably say great passer. Obviously not as great as LeBron. LeBron's one of the best passers of all time up there with Magic Johnson, Steve Nash, obviously. And, you know, I'm sure I'm missing a few others, but for time's sake. So I would rather have that because also I know at the end of close games, I trust, I would trust Jordan more personally. And I know the clutch numbers and stuff are probably going to pop up and all that, but as much as the LeBron clutch factor or when Skip Bayless made the whole LeBron unclutch narrative really popular, I always thought that was overblown. I never thought LeBron was a choker, but I will say that there were times when LeBron had the ball in his hands and I wouldn't trust him to get a go-ahead bucket earlier in his career. But after 2011, where he got embarrassed in the finals, I really think he turned that whole thing around. And I thought it was overblown to begin with. But there were times last, or there were times early in his career where that criticism was warranted, even though guys like Skip Bayless took that to a whole other level. But I would, if you're telling me if I needed somebody to win a basketball game to save my life or a buzzer beater to save my life, I would take Michael Jordan. Just like if I needed a two-minute drive down the football field to win the game to score a touchdown, I would take Tom Brady. Or actually, at this rate, in the next year, Patrick Mahomes. <sighs> Quick aside as a Niner fan, I, I can't hate Patrick Mahomes. He was my favorite player to watch before the season and then he became he was my favorite player to watch when he became league MVP. And then, you know, he kind of had an up and down year with injuries earlier in the season and then kind of rounded out in the form and then killed my Niners in the fourth quarter of the Super Bowl. But Patrick Mahomes is also somebody on that list I would trust with my life on the line to get a game winning drive for a touchdown. And that's where I think Michael Jordan would get the goat edge for me. Although by the end of LeBron's career, I probably would have LeBron first. I was always like, especially when I was like in my early 20s, I would tell people as I would tell my friends as much as I love LeBron and I think he's going to finish top three ever. And this was like when he won his first championship with Miami, his second championship around that, the heat uh, repeat. I always said like, Michael Jordan is the unassailable goat, but my stance has changed on that, especially as, which, you know, people change when they get older and as we get new information, but I would still take Jordan. But anyway, it was a good documentary. I would recommend it. I think I've gone a little bit too long on two topics, but a lot of good stuff in there. Hopefully... We get the NBA back in a safe manner, although I really don't think you could be 100% safe. You kind of just got to go with some risk at this point, especially if your motivation is to 
recoup the TV deal money because the fan revenue is gone at this point or the rest of the fan revenue for the rest of the season. But hopefully the NBA comes back. Hopefully if you liked my review, although I felt like I gave more of my negative points in the documentary than the positive points, but I would give the documentary an eight and a half, nine out of 10, somewhere between eight and nine. But I would recommend it absolutely 100%. And if you're a Bulls fan or a Michael Jordan fan, this is just, a, you're going to be a pig and slop for this. So anyway, thank you for tuning in. Stay tuned for my video dropping this Friday. We're going to be continuing my look back at the 2010 NBA decade. And I'm going to be redrafting the 2010 NBA draft and then also I have a little something something planned in the next few weeks uh I mentioned earlier about how I like when both worlds collide for me and I might be doing something that has to do with basketball and surprise surprise because it's on brand for me anime thanks for listening stay tuned for the next episode and I'll catch you soon